The film has a connection to its audience that I'm not part of. Even if I wrote it and directed it, it's still something where they connect with the film, which tells me that there is something about the projection the other way around, uh, not just uh, our projecting the film on a wall, but what people project into it themselves when they watch it, that there is some chemistry going on there that is uh, uh, rare. That was Lona Shafi, and this is Nordic Portraits. Lona Shafi is a film director and screenplay writer who rose to global acclaim with her 2000 dogma classic, Italian for Beginners, and has since been responsible for a number of highly successful English language films, including the Academy Award nominated In Education. With a career spanning more than three decades and a number of new projects on the way, she's showing no signs of slowing down. Lona, welcome to Nordic Portraits. Thank you. Lona, I wanted to start because I'm very curious. I, I didn't grow up in Denmark, and... I'm always curious how early childhood memories shape a filmmaker's direction. And I wondered, what was it like for you growing up in Copenhagen in the 60s and 70s? Uh, I was alone quite a lot. Uh, Both my parents worked. Uh, My older sister went to school and um, they felt that we shouldn't uh, take up a kindergarten space. So I think that solitude with fantasy playmates and... uh, extreme focus on minor, minor details like the fringes in the carpet. And uh, that has, in a certain way, been defining for how I still function. And did your parents encourage that curiosity at a young age? Um, I mean, they encouraged my fantasy playmates in the way that there were plates at the table. The, the table was set for them as well. But And uh, early, early on, I got a typewriter as a gift uh, and started writing. So I actually published things already uh, as a child. And they knew I loved to write, and my father said I should consider becoming a, a critic or a journalist. My, my mother worked for the Royal Theatre in Copenhagen, so I spent a lot of time in the wings or in the audience watching rehearsals as well. So part of that, but it's not an artistic family per se, even if uh, Hans Scherfig, my father's uncle, is a, a well-known painter and writer in this part of the world and in, in the uh, Soviet Union which right. it was at that time. You mentioned writing. Does the, the name Elsa Claes Monson? That rings a bell. That's, I'm impressed with your research. <laughs> uh, she was my alter ego, an elderly lady, and, and when I wrote something, I wrote under her name. And if I got paid, I had to call up and said, I am her, and would they please change the check and, and uh, make it out to Lone Sheffy <laughs> instead? It was very little, but quite, um, I was proud. I didn't tell anyone at school or anything, but my parents knew. And I think I continued thinking of myself as a writer until I found out that filmmaking was actually a job you could have. So you could just go to the cinema for the rest of your life. But interestingly, that time in my early childhood, I've shot a lot that takes place in that time. An education, as you mentioned, my graduation film from the film school, two different TV series in Denmark, um, Astronaut's Wives Club, mm. which I shot in the, the United States a few years back. And uh, it seems like the early 60s that somehow I am attracted to it, even if I always think now I should shoot something and go into the time machine that filmmaking can be and and, uh, jump up at a different stop. But there is something about it. And I also, I can go completely hypnotized by the male actors because they remind me of my father when I was a child. Wow, yeah. Peter Sarsgaard in an education, it could be a, a... lapel, uh, a hand, a foot, uh, 
I mean, the things and the intensity you experience things with as a child that I can find my way back into, it's really odd, even if it's a different country than the one I grew up in. And so when did film enter your life as a young woman? We went to the cinema um, once a week. I have a sister and we would wear uh, dresses starched with potato flour, put on our very best dresses and go once a week. My mom, who had a complicated childhood, grew up in a building that had a cinema in the ground floor. So she sneaked in there every time she needed to get away from her family. And I think part of the love for films that I have comes from her that she would always, you know, explain to me who's Audrey Hepburn and, oh, Gregory Peck is such a charming man and that kind of thing. So I knew um, uh, Hollywood films from early, early childhood. And then when I was about 14, 15, I started watching the French and Italian films. And those are the films I still feel the most uh, connected to. But when I was young, all the major auteurs were still alive. Mm. I mean, you would oh, next week there's a new Fellini film or a new Bergman film. or And then, of course, the golden age of American filmmaking. Uh, wow, there's a second Godfather film. Uh, so I've also been lucky to be young and be a student at a time where films may have been at their absolute or film history had peaked in many countries at the same time. And you benefited from that when you received your education at the Danish film school as well, because I understand you had a lot of visiting lecturers that would come that were in their own rights, magnificent filmmakers. Yeah, we did. It was, uh, there weren't that many film schools then. And, and and the Danish one is good and was good. And, and many came and visited. Sometimes they still do because people like to go to Copenhagen and it's convenient. Uh, for instance, a writer like Jean-Claude Carrière, who is one of the absolute best in the world, if not the best, uh, would come and teach us, even if we were a small school in a small country. Also, the school is free, so it means that it's hard to get in. I still am, can't you know, get over the fact that I got in, but it means that the standard is high because the students are, at now they're already filmmakers once they go into the school. And of course, it means that Teachers or professionals from abroad will meet students that ask good questions. And, and you mentioned that it was that you're still surprised you got in. Uh, obviously, it's different today because you could ostensibly shoot a, a short film on a mobile phone. But what did you submit at that time? <laughs> yeah, that is. I've been part of that group who, who decides who should go to the school. And, and nowadays, you think, oh, if they really want to become filmmakers, why aren't they already <laughs> filmmakers? Yeah. But then, uh, I mean, you couldn't even watch films without going to the cinema. So I sent in some hopeless photos and a couple of short stories. And uh, there was a certain reaction that the Lars von Trier is a year ahead of me. And they wanted rougher, more unestablished talent. I don't know if they were inspired by the fact that they could already see that he was extremely talented without... Uh, actually, he had shot some films before he, he got into that school. But there was... They wanted people who were younger, fresher, uh, less educated. So I think they took a chance also because I was very young, which also meant that I was very young when I got out of film school and then had to learn from the from scratch, how to actually make those films by being a, you know, doing the clapperboard or becoming a script supervisor, an assistant director, uh, working my way up, even if I got in the, the front door, so to speak. So sometimes I would be a director at a very young age, so young that if I introduce myself saying, hello, I'm Lona, I'm the director, people would ask, yes, but so where's the director, director? <laughs> Um, but uh, I also, in between that, uh, shot commercials, edited, did all sorts of work. So you really learned the craft from kind of a 360 degree. Especially from shooting so many commercials. We didn't have commercial. We only had one TV station, but we got a second one or and, and a commercial one uh, right when I got out of film school. And, and though our background was very, very artistic, conservative, uh, somewhat socialist too, we did not see ourselves as anyone who should ever touch commercials. 
actually many of us ended up doing that and, and learned to work in different genres, work with all sorts of different equipment, tell a story. I, I mean, remember to actually tell the story you're out to tell, even if it's 15 seconds long. Learn more about graphic design, about directing amateurs, for instance, which was often the case. There's a lot that that came with that. I think it also ruined my comedic timing a little bit because commercials that are supposed to be witty very rarely are. Mm. And um, there is not much humor in what I'm saying right now, but there is a lot of humor in my work and, and was in the commercials as well. But the way you time it and cut it to the bone always because you have to fit the story into a very, very small uh, window of, I don't know, 18, 20 seconds, then um, there's something about using the pause as a proper tool uh, for comedy that it took me a while to find my way back to. And you just can't afford that in a commercial. <laughs> There's not the time for it. <laughs> no. Well, you could have days where you thought, my God, we've been so diligent today. We've cut out a second and a half. <laughs> so it's a completely different mm. mindset than shooting um, television where you shoot many more pages every day and, and have to work with much more alfresco and with uh, much more pressure on uh, the actors and, and uh, speed and making fast decisions. And whereas uh, commercials is detail, detail, mm. detail, down to the buttons on the cuffs in the shirt, the man who shows you the washing machine is wearing. Mm. So you you worked quite a bit with commercials and then you have the opportunity to direct your first feature film, The Birthday Trip. Yes, we shot that in November 89, which is when uh, the Berlin Wall was uh, torn down. Is it actually shot in Poland on it's location? It's shot in Poland on location and we were in Stettin, which is maybe an hour and a half from Berlin. But I was so tired and exhausted that Anthony Dot Mantle, who later had an Oscar for his phenomenal cinematography on... Uh, uh, Slumdog Millionaire. Slumdog Millionaire's way, that's right. He... Um, he was a, a cinematographer's assistant on that film. I knew him from film school and he went. But of course, the whole world was changing and and we did see some of the effects, uh, and especially when the film came out, which was a film that uh, very much dealt with the difference between Western men and Polish women. It was about a male order uh, bride, where you find your bride, um, it's very dated now, the film, also because nowadays you do not find a spouse uh, by writing letters. Well, you say you say it's dated, <laughs> but it does still have very uh, fine comedic moments. So you obviously found your, your comedic footing rather quickly. Uh, it Yes, or it chose a script where I felt that I could relate to the tone in it. I suppose that's... Um, that's probably the case. That I, it looks as if I influence all the films with a specific tone, and I think I do. And the films that I've directed that I haven't written somehow are very related to the films that I've written. Also, it's not just a, a layer of something I paint everything with or pour onto it. It's also that I find scripts where I feel that I'm going to take the little fragile egg that a script is and run through the massive film machine and make sure that the egg is still intact when you get to the release. That's anyway how I really felt with an education because the script was minimalist and uh, innocent and uh, actually more or less a first-time writer. Even if Nick Hornby was established, he had hardly written anything uh, in terms of film. And, and And the same thing goes for all the films I've made in Great Britain that the writers have been established, but not as script writers. So that's given me a possibility to influence, but it, it has also given less security than if I'd worked with someone who really knew the depth of, of filmmaking or really understood the, the language. Do you feel that's provided you with an opportunity to assert perhaps more of your own stylistic leanings in those situations? Because... 
If it's a rather immature or inexperienced screenwriter, then you're able to come a little bit more with your own comments and opinions? Mm, no, I would, I would much prefer, and I've experienced that with some of those two, that they are much better writers than I am. Mm. I would always be looking for a script that makes me a better director and where the synergy is there. And um, when they come and see the film, they are pleased that it looks better better than they had imagined and then don't see the compromises and where I have a script where I feel that it's uh, that I'm deeply related to it and that I can be loyal to the writer because I want to be not just because I you know morally feel obliged to well, you, well, but you mentioned the the synergy there. I mean, what film is an interesting art form because it is so collaborative, and so I'm curious, you know, what you look for when you are selecting your team uh it depends a bit on the project but it's it's of course quite different the team uh, in front of the camera or the cast and then the the team you work with i used to like working with the same people all the time but i haven't been able to in the uk and now i actually also really enjoy working with somebody who teaches me things I didn't know and who delivers something that is better than what I could suggest or imagine. And sometimes that is people you already know that you build on a collaboration you already have. But sometimes it's also working with somebody younger or a different nationality or um, who simply knows better. Hmm. It's interesting because when I shot Astronauts Wives Club, this uh, TV series about the uh, Mercury mission, I kept being so surprised that the production design department came up with something I thought was too modern and, and anachronistic. And I would say, are you really sure they would have a teacup like this or a handbag like that? I really cannot remember that. And I lived then. And then it obviously it's because they were five years ahead in the United States mm. that we were very behind here. Um, so it's also about trusting people. Of course, and being inspired. And it also means that whatever they come up with, I wouldn't have come up with myself. Also things I didn't know I liked. I'm quite uh, cautious about how I I like to use color on film. And uh, this is something that's very often challenged when I start a new collaboration, that I shouldn't be so paranoid about color and it's a Scandinavian thing and why does it have to be so clean scrubbed everything and and um, it means that for instance the last film uh, or the most recent film the kindness of strangers has a lot of red in it which i've never used there are films i've done that do not have any red elements or hardly any yellow either but the kindness of strangers has much more of the jewel tones the deep green the ruby red um, and that is a Canadian production designer, Carol Spear, who has worked with this for 50 years and would kind of encourage that I don't just have two great tools in the cinematic toolbox using the color red, for, for instance, that I just never use. And the same thing, actually, speaking about bigger devices, goes for uh, violence uh, or Sex. There is some sex in some of the films I've made, but there's a lot more sex that I've shot that's cut out because I think when you get to, okay, so what can we cut out? Those are the scenes that uh, very quickly uh, you decide to go for the power of suggestion rather than have the whole scene. But but I haven't done much violence until I did The Riot Club, the film about the the uh, British uh, elitist... Uh, Boy, you made up for lost time with the violence in that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, it, there is a very violent scene in that film, but I, I have to say, again, in, in that film it feels very violent, but it's no more violent than what you'd see in a pub in Belfast on a Friday evening. It's just that... Um, well, there's a Danish uh, director, one of my absolute favourites, uh, Nils Malmros, who used to say that... Um, he, he did coming-of-age films, autobiographical uh, films about his own childhood and youth, and he said it doesn't matter on film if a little girl has her dress torn or you see 12 men get killed. It's it's just a different scale. Um, and I've always worked that way, that the films were quite uh, not super expressionistic, 
but I like it now. I would like to take up more aesthetic space and, and go for stronger cocktails of plot and uh, violence if it if it's meaningful to the story. Mm. I mean, there's no such thing as, as meaningful violence, but it, in the riot club, which is uh, built on a quite violent real world or real club, existing club, then it makes sense. Mm. I'm curious... We look back a little bit to Italian for Beginners. How did you come across the dogma movement? How were you involved? And what were the kind of early permeations of that? Centropa, uh, Lars von Trier's company, uh, with Peter Olbeck, had bought most of a military base to start a, a film studio there. And, and one of the reasons they could start was they were shooting a Big TV series, Quiet Waters, uh, a 26-episode series in the 50s, late 50s again, where I directed uh, 13 episodes. And then they asked if I wanted to stay and do a a dogma film, which uh, was the fifth of the Danish dogma films, and I was the first sister. I wasn't the first who was asked. There were quite a few Danish established directors at the time who thought, why do something where you have to work with that little equipment and um, uh, why do something where you already, before you have even shot the film, know it's not going to look good. But I thought it was a wonderful challenge. Uh, Can you explain just what dogma is in in basic layman's terms? It was a a set of rules that you signed. Everything is handheld, no costumes, uh, no makeup, no props, no sets, no... Superficial uh, action, no genre, um, and you you signed a vow vow of chastity. I'm no longer an an artist. I only I don't make aesthetic decisions. All of that, and I I thought it was wildly inspiring, and wrote a film that just took place right around uh, that military base where the studio was, the nearest hairdresser, the classroom uh, across the street from my office there's a stadium around the corner a church and the, I just wrote a story that was uh, quite random but of course had thoughts and 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 themes that were not random that were things that I had been I mean some of the things it has some elements of something I've tried in my life or done but it was also just things I was entertained by or worried about uh, that was just thrown uh, through this uh, funnel that dogma in a way was and I was quite fearless I was almost ready to give up my career and find a different job so so I thought the answer to those rules is to do something that is what I really love uh, not be too pretentious do something Light and it meant that I found a, a more uh, uh, humor-oriented voice than I had had. So I sort of found my feet and found my tone. It's in the previous films the same thing, but in Italian for Beginners, it's it's there full on, which I got uh, very good reactions to all over the world. I've seen that film in Bhutan, Russia. Uh, Los Angeles, um, Australia actually as well, and many, many different places in the world. I've seen the film with audiences who laugh at exactly the same places, which is lovely. It's so uplifting that that is the case. Because we always, we were always taught that comedy doesn't travel and especially not Danish comedy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that experience of stripping things back aesthetically to actually find your own cinematic voice that must have also been very rewarding for you or were you apprehensive before going onto the set you know having written the manuscript and being ready to to roll how did you feel on day one of shooting it just took a day or two to find out how to work in that uh, within those restrictions and and to learn how to consider obstacles blessings and if you were going to shoot and it rained, you would stop, you would just change the scene so fine, so they're wet, so they're running, so uh, every problem you had, you had to turn around and make it work for the story. And I've done that since, uh, and rely on reality and always keep a 
bit of a window open for reality to be able to kick in if it's better than what you had planned. And also to trust the actors that they like to work and they like to have influence and that they have to listen to each other. They have to also keep an open mind for something unpredictable to to happen. And then you get this quality of things that happen for the first time. And you get actors that are a bit more uh, tense or alert or uh, present. And I think that is something I would never want to not have. I think even if I were to shoot a, a complete genre movie where you shoot actors in huge costumes in front of a green screen, I would still hold on to the courage it takes to work that way where you only control things 95% and are open to whatever ideas better that may come up on the day. You have had great success in finding amazing actors to play even smaller roles in some of your films, particularly in hindsight when you look back at some of the the cast members that might not have had prominent roles but have gone on to great success. What is that kind of secret ingredient or what are you looking for when you're casting? Uh, I think I, I can see that there are a lot of good performances in the films I've directed and part of it is that I'm not super idiosyncratic about how it should be. I don't think exactly what each moment of a shot should uh, deliver in order to be perfect. I give them a little more space, which means that I get uh, something that has a bit more life and where you are, are not putting so much pressure on the actors, but also it's casting. It's finding somebody who I like, but also who can understand my more or less homemade way of directing. Do you think actors by and large respond well to that approach? Yes. Uh, I get very nice emails after where they, I mean, the job is not to give the actors a good time. The The job is obviously that the audience should have a, a meaningful time and good time or be moved or entertained or feel seen or heard. Or, uh, But um, I just like to cast actors who also likes the challenge of, of having some influence, particularly because I shoot uh, a lot in language that's not my native language. So there is an accuracy I will never have. Uh, I'm much more idiosyncratic when I shoot in Danish right? Uh, about intonation. Um, I'm, I'm also the conscious about the slightest uh, brushstrokes of a dialect or something that's not quite correct in terms of class or I, I, I can hear that in Danish uh, at a much more detailed level than I can in English. How did you overcome that? Because that was a huge step. In 2007, uh, you released, uh, I'm trying to find the English word for it. 2007, you released Feels Like Home and then 2009, and education. So you've gone from a Danish film, which was quirky, super interesting about kind of small town life in Denmark. And suddenly you're at the helm of a rather large, presumably much bigger budget film in a language that's not your own with a team that I'm guessing largely is not one that you're used to working with. Was that really challenging for you? I needed a challenge. Uh, the, the the other film, Feels Like Home, is actually a better title than Just Like Home, which is the actual title. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking, oh, we should have called it that. But to, yeah. that film was written as we shot it. Uh, so it's a very odd film. We would sh- write something in the evening and shoot it on I the did following not know day. That. Uh, no, and we should have told people because in that that makes it much more meaningful when you watch the film. But I needed a challenge and... Uh, of course, I had no one with me when I shot in education. I didn't have a cinematographer or anybody. But it gave me a certain um, boost, my self-esteem, that it landed on both legs, even if I felt quite alone. And also, filmmaking is pretty much the same all over this part of the the Anglo-Saxon world. You Things are called something slightly different, but the the orchestra is the same. It's like being a conductor and then you just come in and conduct. But the instruments are the same. But there is talent in the UK that is fantastic as a director to work with. They have the, there's just the writing, uh, the architecture, the graphic 
uh, tradition. The sound uh, department who I've worked with back-to-back for four films, excellent people. I mean, there are people at the same level here, but um, it was great to go abroad and work nonstop, not having to cook or clean or anything. I could, I, I just had to remember to go home because otherwise people would stay in the office and not throw 50 emails uh, at people late in the evening, but actually just keep them and send them the following morning. So I also worked very hard and enjoyed it a lot. And then um, because Peter Sarsgaard is American, plays English in that film, there would be a dialect coach on, on set. And of course that is a a good security to have when you yourself don't have the knowledge of the language. There are also some excellent actors. And I mean, Emma Thompson is pretty good at speaking English. It's not <laughs> I've noticed, yeah. <laughs> and Carrie Mulligan is a, is a very intelligent girl, even if she had so little experience uh, as, a, as an actress and, and was uh, quite young, then she is still... Uh, makes uh, already then made really smart decisions. It's much easier to direct good actors. I'm sure, I'm sure <laughs> it is. Well, you must take some pride personally in where Carrie has found herself now. I mean, she's just gone from strength to strength since that role. Uh, I'm proud on, on her behalf, but it's not. I mean, it's not because of me. I mean, it's rare that someone at that young an age get a leading part where you are in almost every single scene. So deciding that it should be her, I mean, gave her a chance. But I I think she could have done the same without that film. Mm. Of course, she wouldn't do it as quickly because she was nominated to the BAFTAs and the uh, she actually got a BAFTA, but also Golden Globes and, and uh, the Academy Awards and That is rare at such a young age, but um, she is just a really, really lovely actress and she has something nobody else has, which is another aspect of becoming an A-list actress, as it's called. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you use the Hollywood terminology. How was it for you entering into that world where an education comes out is lauded by critics globally and suddenly you're on the campaign trail for the Academy Awards, nominated for Best Picture. Was that a circus or was it something that you could sit back and enjoy the ride? Did it feel strange to you? I, I, I did sit back and enjoy it and just decided to do my best. And, and I had travelled a lot with Italian for Beginners too, so I had been to many of those festivals already. What I might have done could be to, to have done it much more professionally, hire somebody uh, uh, or try to get much more out of it in terms of prestige and but I I just enjoyed it more wanted to be there for my family more uh, felt that now I had already been away so much that I wanted to to keep it to a minimum but doing my best Carrie actually was much smart so she went for it full on uh, in the most professional way and I could have maybe learned from her even if it should have been the other way around. Mm. When Italian for Beginners came out, it exploded at the Danish box office. <laughs> it was, am I correct in saying it was the highest grossing or the most tickets sold of any Danish film at the time? Uh, no, but it was for many years the highest grossing uh, Scandinavian uh, film worldwide wow. until The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. <laughs> So it sold very well. Miramax picked it up, and so it had a, a fairly wide release in the United States too. And of course, that's a much, much uh, bigger audience, and Germany uh, as well. But here, it's it did sell tickets to about uh, almost twenty percent of the population, which is fine. It's great. And now I think everybody has seen it because it's been on television so many times. What What do you think it is about that film that resonates with people so much? I think some of the underlying themes: uh, solitude, uh, mourning, people who are not able to express themselves very well, up up familiar to many many people. Um, I also think that one dogma rules that you couldn't put score on the film so there's no music. I think that leaves a bit more space for the viewer uh, to emotionally engage because they're not told what to feel. 
they sort of thought about that later that that might be another reason why people engage with it so much and remember the dialogue and um the film has a connection to its audience that I'm not part of even if I wrote it and directed it it's still something where they connect with the film which tells me that there is something about the projection the other way around uh, not just uh, our projecting the film on a wall but what people project into it themselves when they watch it that there is some chemistry going on there that is uh, uh, rare well now that there's some now that many years have passed and there's some distance there do you reflect on exactly what that period of time meant for Danish cinema, for modern Danish cinema? Was it screaming out for a new voice or it feels in hindsight like that was such a pivotal moment, your film and the and the other early films of that era? Yeah, there was a period in Danish films where no matter what we did, it went well. It it was, and we didn't know how hard it can be because things just were easy. You got access to the biggest festival and the largest audience and, and um completely effortlessly in a way and later on you found out how hard it is and how much more you should have enjoyed it then but it's also the beginning of an era where technology is much more accessible uh, that we could shoot with much less equipment and it's been like that to a certain degree since then we don't shoot very much on, on film anymore the cameras are usually lighter it's not we hand hold all the time, or well, not I, but the cameraman holds the camera or puts the camera on his shoulder a lot of the time. And um, it's almost the other way around now that you would wish that the young directors had a bigger budget so they could actually play on the whole piano and not just the middle two octaves. But there is so much financial limitation to shooting in a country that has only five million people speaking the language we speak that as whenever you shoot in Danish you will by definition not be able to access a a proper budget where you can show the craft or the art in a large scale. And that's a shame because the talent is definitely there. What is your favorite part of the filmmaking process? I love um the music recording <laughs> so it's uh, it's just a day or two on each film. I really love that. Um, Is that because you've always just been drawn to music? Or? I like classical music very much, and and there is almost a, a symphonic score in all other films I've made, except Italian Beginners. And uh, to see the film, and the, I, I mean, also music makes a huge difference. So all of a sudden, the film from one day to the next is a lot better. I like moments with actors. I've loved shooting with Bill Nye twice. It's uh, what is it about that relationship with him? <laughs> I read that you're embarking on a third project together as well. Yes, I. I mean, he's just an example. Or not, I mean, I wouldn't call him an example of anything because he's so unique. But shooting with someone where you uh, just like whatever they do, it's wildly entertaining. I also really do my best because I don't want to ruin anything. I. I want to make sure that he has space to uh, do what he'd like to do and that he's not asked to do something he doesn't like to do. So it's a fragile uh, work relation in a way, even if he's pretty robust. But I'm just concerned that he is very happy all the time and not worried about anything. Uh, But I've had other valuable relationships with other people. I love working with the production designers too, the directors of photography, the, what they bring to the table and to have meetings with them early, early on where you little by little begin to see a film uh, together. The things you should or, or would imagine that I particularly like as a woman, costume, makeup, I'm, I'm this interested in. I like uh, props, things people hold, things that tell culture, history, music, and I, and the writers too. You can hear I really like this process. And had not having shot very much when I entered film school, it was actually a surprise when I got out that I happened to really like the job that I had been spent eight years uh, <laughs> in, in education. Um, that it's so collaborative, that it's fast. 
you laugh a lot, especially in, in the UK, because many people just have such a good sense of humor. Mm. When actors do something that's bitter, especially when I've written something and it comes off better than I had imagined, yeah, there's a lot of it I really like. Do you find it stressful? Uh, yes, but I'm also fairly good at handling stress, I think, compared to a lot of my colleagues. I um, I try to fight the material and not other people. I try to choose my battles. I try to forgive myself and go to sleep early, even if I could have been sleepless all night being bitter about something I could have done better or somebody else could have done better, to always keep looking ahead, to keep focusing and not uh, being so obsessed with detail that that I forget to see the whole film all the time. I try to communicate a lot because I've seen other directors communicate too little and forgive myself that I'm not one of the biggest uh, directors in the world who I admire and love so much that there's still somebody who who can have a nice time at the cinema even if I am behind the film. <laughs> well, I was curious as well if you could have a cup of coffee with one filmmaker, dead or alive, who would you choose and, and why? I think Truffaut, uh, François Truffaut, the, the French director, is somebody I probably would learn a lot from completely fall for probably um, <laughs> like to ask some questions about his work I think many others I'd just be or maybe Bergman he's so different um, but I think Bergman's work ethics would be good for me to just be in the room with him because he took himself very seriously as an, an artist and I really have problems with that. I think it's super pretentious when directors do that, but he could do it and had reason to. Uh, but I've met uh, many of them uh, over the years. And so actually Michael Haneke, who is my absolute mm-hmm. favorite, I have sat next to at dinner a couple of times, but his English is uh, not much better than my German. So it's been hard to have a, a proper conversation, but I've heard him speak and, and, um, seen all his work and admire him to bits so did you ever have a sense as a woman that there were going to be barriers or specific limitations entering in what was a and still very much is a male-dominated profession no I mean it's actually more the last few years where I I'm much more aware of it than I've ever been because it's everywhere now that I can see it in retrospect and I can I can see it now and I can sometimes even feel in myself that I also must think of other women as exactly as uh, competent as their male colleagues. But it was easier here when I started out. And uh, I mean, statistically, we don't have more directors in this country than in, in many others. But the female directors here are respected and quite commercial. So I haven't felt it as a big problem. I don't think I've been, uh, I've had a job I didn't get for that reason, for instance. Um, did you feel when you moved over to the UK that they were taking a big risk by selecting someone from a Danish background who hadn't worked in an English-speaking environment before? Um, I think they probably felt it, but I didn't because I, first of all, I really loved uh, Nick Hornby's script and I felt I, I understood his tone. Also, I knew Carrie Mulligan's character I had more in common with than I realized then, but I've I've... There are uh, some congruence between her uh, youth and my own. You know, I also went to Paris and smoked and wore black and I, I'm, all that she talks about longing for. Uh, so there were similarities. And also I had shot a lot. Many, many people thought that Italian for Beginners was my first film, but I actually shot a couple of TV series, uh, three feature films, hundred commercials. I had experience, and an education is not a very big film. A lot of it is 
four people around a dinner table. It's uh, it's quite simple. The challenge is or was to get that innocence and get that simplicity right. And finally, there were, I don't know how many directors must have turned that script down before I got it. I mean, I'm sure I wasn't the first choice or the second or the third for that matter. So it's 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 always a bigger risk when you're the director because you risk your entire career every time and you spend years on a film whereas everybody else can just move on to a second film soon after. So I know I don't feel sorry for them at all. <laughs> <laughs> well, Lorna, your films have always had character, well, your films have always had heart and your characters convey that in many ways. I just wanted to briefly talk about your latest project, The Kindness of Strangers, because I feel like that's maybe more overt than ever before. And I just wondered, particularly it being based in New York, the current political climate in the US, kind of what message you were wanting to tell through that story? Yeah, it's really tricky because the film is not as... uh, closely tied into realism as is the American tradition. And I mean, even if many American films are quite glamorous, they if you disregard all the genre films, but just look at films that takes place now in a realistic world, there is a certain demand that the films do obey to a, a set of rules about what is logic and realistic that I wasn't quite aware of. And um, that's actually an example where I should have asked for advice on something that I didn't know uh, I needed. I did research a lot. The film is about um, a young woman who runs away from home with her two children, very quickly becomes homeless and meets a few other people or the other protagonists who help one another and and meet by coincidence, in a Russian restaurant that becomes their um, secret space where they can meet and and, uh, little by little they become each other's uh, closest allies. So it's this uh, victim of wife abuse, it's a nurse, it's an ex-convict, and it's a young man who's just not very good at anything. And then Bill Nye's character who who runs the Russian restaurant. And so it's an ensemble film about things that worried me and about charity in the best sense of the word, Americans reaching out for one another. It's about when you have no one, you have the strangers. So thank you for thinking the film has heart because it really comes from a good place and I wanted to make a film that has hope. But maybe it has so much hope that it lost uh, a sense of how how very, very tough life can be in the United States at the moment because there is such a happy ending that it's on the border of being more of a Danish fairy tale than uh, American social realism. And if you feel that you did maybe slightly miss the mark or that it wasn't successful in what you set out to achieve at the very start, is it hard for you to kind of brush yourself off and focus on the next project or are you the kind of person that harbors regret? If I were to start over and shoot it again uh, or learn from it, um, I think I need a bit more distance. It opens tomorrow. Mm. Uh, So uh, I don't know yet what it is I can would do different another time. But I do know that the projects I'm looking for now should have uh, a strong plot and a strong budget because it it uh, so far so good. Then there's space for you as a director. You get to work a bit more slowly. You get to lean onto a strong drama so you can rest a bit rather than just keeping the dramatic engine running. But we'll see how it goes. It's been sold to many, many countries. so, And I've experienced it with a couple of audiences. And it won a, an audience award at an Italian festival, which I was really happy to experience. So we'll see. It must be very nerve-wracking when you have that first screening and you're sitting in on it. 
something that you've spent, you know, a couple of years in giving birth to. Yeah, it is nerve-wracking. And you think it's so fast uh, and you, you sit and want to re-edit and you can't change things. But if the film feels different every time, that you can have evenings where you think, why is everything so slow today and why can't they act a bit faster or is something wrong with the projector and but of course you also have to live with the fact that now the film belongs to the audience and I should uh, do something different and I end doing something different now but I try to learn from looking back at my body of work and obviously learn from things that didn't go well but also count my blessings and look at what was I good at, not to to repeat myself, but to uh, not fall into despair. <laughs> it's not something I do a lot. <laughs> but if you go, I mean, any party with film directors, you they'll sit at 4 a.m. in the kitchen and all complain. <laughs> you forget uh, successes much faster than the things that didn't, quite land on both legs. Final question, Lona. You obviously have a lot of films still ahead of you, but when you eventually allow yourself to hang up the camera and, I don't know, go on a very long holiday with your husband and your daughter, but um, when that happens, how would you like to your legacy to be remembered in terms of what you contributed to, to Danish film and film at large? I know it's a big question, but I'm just curious what you would like to have, have left with your art. Well, I hope I will have left films that are better than the ones I've left so far. I mean, I'm hoping I have my best work ahead of me, but I don't know for how many years I'll actually continue because there are a lot of other things that I like to do. Um, compose. <laughs> uh, I have all the software waiting at home under the piano, and so I can one day get it out and... and um, Uh, record some of the music that I have heard, but only inside my mind. Well, we will look forward to hearing <laughs> those scores and maybe seeing <laughs> a, is, seeing Italian the... <laughs> for Beginners finally with that score we never got back but, in the year. But that is a podcast I think only my grandchildren will want to listen to. <laughs> uh, Lorna, thanks so much for your time. It was really a pleasure. Thank you, and the same. Nordic Portraits is a series by me, Ben Catford. The music was composed by Nina Liu and the visual identity by Copenhagen-based studio Frame. To learn more about today's guest and all the others from this season, visit nordicportraits.net. You can also follow us on Instagram and remember to rate and subscribe on iTunes so we can get the word out. Thanks for listening.